0: Hi, and welcome to Simple Interrupted, a podcast about how to evolve in the ever-shifting landscape of veterinary medicine and practice management. I'm Mary Schwartz, your host. I'm a CVT, now working as a solutions consultant at PetDesk, and my career in the veterinary industry spans over a decade. I'm passionate about helping veterinary professionals improve our industry by starting with their individual clinics. I truly believe, along with the guests that will be featured on the podcast, that you can have your dream career and not be plagued by the many roadblocks we see today. This is a podcast by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. Each week, we bring industry experts onto the show to talk about how practices can survive radical vet industry change by adopting a care-first approach. In today's episode, we invited David Liss and Sam shopler to discuss what we mean when we say care first. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Sam and David, welcome to the show. We're excited to have you. Sam, could you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you've been up to?
1: Awesome. Thank you, Mary. I'm up to quite a bit, I guess. Uh, in vet school, also still working part-time for pet tests, but overarchingly, I think a lot of the time that I spend and the effort that I make uh, in my day-to-day is towards helping people take care of their pets. And so I'm involved with a group called Vet Partners in the industry. um, That's mainly consultants that are working to help educate their clients on how to improve pet health. Pet Desk is obviously a company that's very focused on helping providers take better care for Their clients, in order for them to take better care of their pets, and I'm in my second year of vet school, so aspiring to be a doctor. Just finished the second year, so I'm at the halfway point, which is a big relief. And yeah, outside of that, uh, just try to stay involved in in as much as I can uh, in groups like the Veterinary Business Management Association on the school side of things, and um, whatever conferences that I can get to in the vet industry.
0: So you've got your a little bit of uh, everything on your plate.
1: Yeah, a full smorgasbord. (laughs) Try to stay busy.
0: Yeah, you've got to. And David, I would love to hear a little bit more about what you're doing these days. I know that you've got a lot of experience in the industry.
2: Yeah, thanks, Mary. Excited to be here. So, I currently am a multi site director. I oversee about 11 practices, uh, kind of in in California, mostly general practices and helping them be successful. I work for uh, Amerivet Veterinary Partners and we um, are a a group that focuses on partnership as an exit strategy for for veterinarians and practice owners. I have been in the industry, That this has been my only job. Obviously I have a lot of different jobs in veterinary medicine. I was a technician for a long time, really enjoyed being on the floor, but I've really moved into a new chapter in my career, which is really people leadership. I really, really enjoy working with veterinary teams, pushing them, supporting them, hearing from them, working with them to connect and run really, really awesome practices that provide great care for pet parents and, you know, they're efficient and profitable. So I appreciate uh, being on the podcast.
0: Yeah, I couldn't imagine two better folks to chat with about Care First. So let's dive into a little bit of what Care First is. And Care First is the acclimation and mindset being adopted by veterinary professionals that embodies the strategic steps independent hospitals need to take to guide their clients to better pet care and defy the big box retailers commoditization of care so knowing that commoditization is a huge issue within our industry and we see things like walmart and lowe's and petco bringing in these big chains to take their share of veterinary care away from the local practitioner how do you think a care first approach or lack thereof affects our industry
2: so i think you have to really see it as kind of a David and Goliath situation. So independent veterinary practices really are are going up a little bit against a Goliath. It's not insurmountable. They can they can certainly get there, but they have to kind of look at what does the big box chain and and what does commoditization look like and what what are the needs of their clients that are not being served. So you know, one of the needs that I think is served, but in a kind of generic way is education. And it's, you know, a lot of the big box groups have a lot of uh, education that they'll provide, but it's done in kind of a dry way. It's an email or it's a blog or, you know, a social media post. Um, and I think that private practices, individual practices that still really offer that kind of boutique experience that are really bonding with their clients. They know, you know, Mrs. Smith, who's been a client for 30 years and wants to see Dr. Bob, who's, you know, been there for, for some time, can really spend a lot more more time in the exam room going over really all of the parts of of care you know they're going to want to tackle the diet and you know debunk the raw food myths and they're going to want to talk about why dentals every year is really important and do it in a way where they're really telling the client you know we know you you know you're not just a number uh you're not just a quote-unquote customer we also don't want to usher you out of the room because we have to see 50 more people we know you we want to spend the time with you that's really really important so it again kind of gets back to really the the roots of veterinary medicine and i think as you as, you, as clinics move towards that, you move a little bit away from what I think most veterinarians, veterinary technicians, and support staff don't wanna do, which is that high volume, um, churn and throughput of, you know, get them in, get them out, get them in, get out. That's not why most of us went into the industry. So you end up with, you know, really more efficient, more profitable, actually, and clinics that provide just a, a really higher standard of care and a higher connection with their patients. You know, if you think about um, what clients search out, right, and we have to defend against, like the Dr. Google stuff, if you don't counter that, you have to know it's there. And it's very easy for all of us to pick up our phones and type in, you know, dog vomiting and get a list of things that it could be. And then we freak out and we run to the vet. If you don't counter that with that kind of personal connection of, hey, you know, did you already look at this up on Google? Gotcha. Let me talk you through why that doesn't work, rather than giving into that and and succumbing to that and saying, "Fine, you know, you already know what Google says." Let's just give you some a shot and get you out of here. Uh, I think we can really win.
1: Well, in that case, yeah, I really appreciate what you said there, David. And a, a bit of background in my experience, my dad is actually a veterinarian, and my aunts a veterinarian. So I kind of grew up in a clinic a little bit, and then. Um, having worked with pet for the last six years, got to see the technology side of things and the evolution within the veterinary space, quote unquote. And one thing that's been really interesting to witness and hear people talk about is is not just how the commoditization of pets is happening, but also as we're in this overarching theme of just convenience is king and uh, subscription world that we're living in how there's also this increase in the personhood of pets. And so people are paying a lot more attention to their pets. They're paying a lot more attention to what they're you know, giving their pets in terms of food or the toys that they get. And so with that personhood of pets, we're also seeing an increase in the amount that pet parents are uh, willing to do for and you plan for their, their pets' lives. And so that's where I think the small clinic has the opportunity to take advantage of a care-first approach – because, yes, as we get into this commoditization, there's gonna be an opportunity for people that are, you know, maybe their first time having a pet or they don't really know where to go. They're gonna maybe find uh, the big box stores a little bit more convenient or cheaper. But as we see this revolution in pet care, On the side of the pet parents, having that experience that David so eloquently outlined of being able to, you know, see the journey of your pet with the same professionals and knowing that the care is there from start to finish um, and being able to really dial in on the specific needs of not just the pet, but of the household of pet parents that are taking those pets into their vet clinic. Um, Is is an awesome opportunity. So I think that that care first model is something that a lot more people are going to be drawn to as they start to pay more attention towards and plan out their pet's health lives.
0: Yeah, I totally agree, Sam. And I feel like you know us sitting on this side of the keyboard, we definitely know the value of the services that the local practitioner provides. We know what expertise they have to offer, and the value of having that same practitioner throughout the life of your pet and what that brings. But How do we educate the public about that? How do we adopt this care-first approach and stay relevant and compete in a world where the public doesn't know the difference between Walmart vet and Dr. Bob's local clinic? Yeah,
2: that's a great question. I think we have to almost go back to where we started in veterinary medicine where most of the doctors would spend a long time in the exam room going over stuff with clients and we we liked engaging in that two way conversation with our with our clients about what's going on with their pet, why we're doing what we're doing. And I think today's world, it's everything is just so busy and everything moves so much faster that it's super easy to just have a client say, you know, my dog's been vomiting a few times and the doctor in his head, you know, or her head does the, you know, the exam and real quickly comes up with the treatment plan and then shoves the injection in and says, okay, you know, Steve's going to check you out. And the client is going, well, what could have caused this? Why? are You know, I worked in emergency a long time and I still over, you know, work with a lot of specialty practices and have, you know, worked in them. And a lot of times the clients are calling, you know, multiple times a day saying, I I just don't understand what's going on. And I understand, of course, too, that there's sometimes some clients just aren't gonna get it. But there's a lot of clients that just say, I talked to the vet for 20 minutes, it was all medical speak, I don't really know what's going on. And if you think about the new the new way a lot of businesses operate is really this ecosystem model, right? So you've got the product or the service, which for us is veterinary medicine, you've got the people that deliver it. So you've got vets and techs and, you know, the building and all the equipment, but they also pretty much to this day have an educational component using social media or other digital channels, whether it be email or, you know, text or whatnot. I mean, I get, you know, after I go to the dentist, I get a text message right after I leave that says, here's a link to some article, you know, that I should read about good dental care. And on their, you know, their Facebook, it'll say today's, I don't know, you know, dental dental awareness month. And did you know that, you know, X percent of kids don't get access to, you know, they have all of these education things that are feeding that direction. Um, you know, as a, as a millennial, I learn, to be honest, most of the new information after having gone to college from YouTube, I type in GameStop, Reddit, you know, stock investing and boom, I can watch 50 videos on how to be a hedge fund. I mean, you know, you can learn this kind of stuff now. So people can go to YouTube and or Twitter or um, TikTok and type in dog diet. And you're going to have a lot of people, including some veterinarians, that'll say, you know, raw food is good and you should never feed them X, Y and Z. We've got to counter that wave by saying, well, we actually believe in whatever, right? Royal Canaan Hills, you know, whatever diets that, that you guys stand behind. So I think it really has to kind of go back to the roots of teaching education, but we do have to do it in a modern way. We've got to think talking in an exam room is great and super important, but super inefficient as well, because we do have to see a lot of people, right? Demand is up, pet ownership is up. So we have to think about other ways that we can get our clients educated so that when they come in, they actually are asking the questions of us, the experts, rather than thinking that they know what they need already. I think that's kind of a feature of commodity right? You walk into Walmart knowing you need lettuce and ketchup to make burgers. We can't have that Of clients walk into a vet clinic saying, my dog needs this medication because I saw it online. They need to come into the veterinarian and technician and say, my dog's been vomiting. What do I do?
1: I really like that. And it's not in opposition to what you just said, but I think there's like this tandem of we need to be able to supplement that educational material and we need to be able to to enhance the journey of the client into the vet clinic before they have their appointment, after they have their appointment leading into it. But I loved the idea of getting back to the roots of vet med and in vet school, right. We're like learning from the moment you meet a client until the moment that, you know, they depart your clinic, whether it's because their pet, passed away or they moved or that entire time is an opportunity to build trust with the client in order for them to see the appropriate way to care for their pet when you don't have them in front of you. I think that trust is such a huge part of what a smaller practice has to offer. And so Throughout the pet parent journey, if I am able to build that trust because I have a great experience in getting into the door, and I have a great experience with the technician and uh, the team up front, I'm more likely to be compliant on the things that the veterinarian wants me to do in between visits. And I think I think that's a really big piece that may get lost in in this bigger conversation about commoditization because. Yeah, you you just aren't going to be able to replace that. So I think, you know, when I've have been pondering how I'm going to be a different veterinarian than my dad, one thing that I've really come to realize is that the pie slice of information that my dad learned, the percent of vet med that he came out of school with the knowledge of, is much greater than what I will. Just because there's so much information out there, and so yes, people are going to be able to search and they're going to be able to find blogs and they're going to be able to find peer-reviewed articles on what pet food is best but at the end of the day the the training that goes into you know veterinary medicine and and what our teams are going to need to adopt more and more is the ability to effectively communicate that and to build a relationship with their clients that is founded on trust and so i think that that trust it really starts with the way you facilitate every interaction with clients but in a big part, it kind of to David's point, it can't be a race against who can see the most appointments in a day. If if that's the foot race that we get into as on a local level, then of course Walmart's gonna win out because they've got the, you know, the well oiled machine to be able to pump out as many appointments as as they
0: possibly can. I think both of you have hit upon something really important with what you were saying it's a big change within our industry. And I think sometimes it's hard to strip away that defensiveness of your own expertise, which is something that I have felt. I know we've all scrolled through Facebook and seen a pet parent post and felt that righteous indignation, but how do we strip that away and create an environment where there is psychological safety and patient safety, where the client feels like they can come in and share, I've been Googling X, Y, or Z, and have it be more of a conversation where they trust the practitioner over Dr. Google.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, and that's that's what's beautiful about that initial distrust is it's almost like the more distrustful somebody is coming in, the more loyal they'll be when you win them over. And I also just want to say it's very, very difficult changing practice and just being in practice right now. There's so many things happening and the landscape is changing so much that it's a very, very difficult time. And so I, I understand that the work is really hard, but I do worry about just like trying to compete with all of the different changes that are taking place. And when it comes to like the ability to create a patient safety culture within the clinic and within the relationship that you have with your client, taking a breather and taking a step to be able to really establish like what the wants and needs are of the client for their pet and what are the things that they want to get out of the relationship with their care providers and really bringing in that more you know, personal communication that can exist within a smaller practice is an incredible way to build the foundation of that relationship for that time moving forward. But it really does have to be a mindset. It has to be a mission of the entire practice, that patient safety being the focal point of what I want to get out of every interaction I have with my clients as a future doctor and you know, establishing on on what level is that true of each of my clients is going to be the best way to honestly ensure that we're doing the things that we need to within that appointment. And we're accomplishing the goals that the client wants for the health of their pet, which gets very complicated. But I think that if we have that as a focal point with our teams, and then with our clients, and as a mission of the clinic, then it does just lend itself towards building that trust early and then making it an effective way of... Communicating moving forward.
2: That's a good point. I, I, I like that you brought up trust, uh, Sam. And I wanted to reinforce something that you said that I think is, su- is super important. And I want to make it clear that I do think, and I don't, I don't want to sound negative, but I think it's something we have to realize that people, I think now, are a little bit more inherently distrustful. And I don't think it's a negative thing. I think we we somehow think that when people question the veterinarian or or want to reference Doctor Google, that we take it internally and actually say, well, they don't trust us anymore or whatnot. I think the change is that because we're very global as a a world now, that they have a lot of choices. And so people, clients, pet parents will say, well, I've got five times as many vet clinics on a street corner that I ever had before, I can Google or YouTube information now, you better up your game when I go to a clinic, you can't tell me that you don't know why something is wrong, because the vet down the street will give me a reason. So it's not about them distrusting, I think, in a negative way, it's almost about us, as you mentioned, gaining trust back from the client and almost assuming that we don't have it at the beginning. And I think that a, a new client is a great example, right? So an old client that has been going to the clinic many years, there's a great way to break their trust, right? And that comes from changing their experience. Now, doesn't mean cl- clinics don't change. They have to change and we have to rebuild that. But a new client that walks in, as, you, as Sam said from the beginning, right, you, you, especially as a younger millennial, right, which is like, you know, more than half the working population, you want to pull up your phone and get an appointment. You've got a lot of things to do. So when you are trying to figure out how to get an appointment, you call them clinic. They put you on hold for twenty minutes. They can't book you, and I'm not blaming anybody. But this is some of the reality, right? That trust is immediately going to start to break, right? And and trust is a relationship that builds over time. It's made up of small incremental um, steps that lead to trust, and it can be broken a lot faster than it can be built. So you know th- you're already kind of stringing that along. Then you finally get in, and there's you know fifty people in the lobby, and they're late for your appointment, and the doctor's rushing, and it just builds and builds and builds. That's why I think a lot of people have really what they feel are negative experiences. That the veterinarian, like, you know, the vet killed my dog. And the idea is that if trust was built from the very beginning, uh, looking at what do I need as a pet parent and fulfilling that need all the way through, I think that that we'd be, you know, a lot farther. And I think that's, a, that's what we need to look at going forward is how do we build trust? Walmart has trust because of their brand recognition. So I don't think we need to have the, the local small practice with, I don't know, a thousand or so kind of clients every year it needs to be a Walmart brand, but they need to kind of act like a Walmart brand. In the sense that you know they've got great client service, they've got great veterinarians, they've got great education, they've got great channels to to deliver that, so that it looks as if it competes on the same level with those big boxes. But the great thing is that it's not, and that's another great area you know to really uh, prioritize. But I think the trust piece is super important, and I think we need to really assume that people have so many choices now: price choices, service choices, location choices. That it's not about distrust, like I think you're bad at what you do and you want to you know you went to vet school to hurt animals. But I think it's saying you got to prove to me that I'm worth it to you because I can go down the street as a client and get service as well. So I think that's where that trust piece comes in. But then once you're starting to build that, Sam, you take it and run with it, as Sam mentioned, and then you'll have a client for life.
1: I think that like sometimes understanding how, how nascent a culture we are, just in terms of searching the internet, like there's not, it took what, 80 years before cars had seatbelts, right? (laughs) Like we don't have a seatbelt for the internet right now. And so applauding people for engaging with the platform and for taking the incentive to, to go and search those things, I think is like, it's sometimes hard to do because the information they may have come to a conclusion on is not medically appropriate. But the fact is that if you were to just take a step back and realize that like, wow, people are doing independent research, which is something 30 years ago, you you would have to pull teeth in order for people to do that kind of research at home. They would be very scared to enter into a realm that they weren't experts in. But now we have this awesome opportunity to say, like, you've done a great job initially, and here are some awesome sources to go along with what you've been looking at. This is the education that you know, these are the, the tools that I use to educate myself as I'm continuing to learn as a professional. I think, yeah, just recognizing that like we have to start being that seatbelt in some senses, but hopefully it's not like an emergency. Maybe it's just the the little sign you see above the highway that's like, hey, remember to use peer-reviewed articles. <laughs> you, right. People have to
0: want to buckle their seatbelt for it to work. <laughs> what I wanted to ask was, David, um, I know that you've worked with a variety of clinics. I know that you've seen a lot of different practices. Knowing that we have this new culture shift towards, you know, Googling whatever we need to Google to stay knowledgeable, to be the best pet parent that you can. What have you seen clinics do successfully to adapt to this care first model? The the higher client engagement, the parity, so to speak?
2: Yeah, there's I mean, the great thing is that this is gonna sound like I'm super smart because I'm gonna say all these things, but the, I didn't I didn't come up with these, you know. Social media is a great thing because now as an owner, manager, vet tech, veterinarian, you can stalk other practices and see what they're doing and take great ideas. And And so that's partly this, plus the practices that I've worked with, I would say probably one or two of these ideas has been my own, the rest have been theirs. The first one, I think, as I mentioned before, was education. If you start, uh, you know, following, there are some really good and really funny veterinary education TikToks that are pretty great. Dr. Adam Chrisman is on TikTok from from uh, CBC and Fetch, and he, will laugh and make a lot of jokes, but he will talk about vaccine protocols and why you need to bring your dog's poop to the vet and all these different things, which are fantastic. So you don't even have to think about producing your own content. You can outsource this and just say, you know, find a, an influencer that you believe in and link to that and, and you know, and, and say, here's some great information. Driving the clients to these information sources. A lot of clinics like to build their own libraries, which is great. It's a lot of work, but um, videos on, you know, how to do basic procedures like nail trims and sub-Q injections and how to hold your Pet if the doctor needs to examine them, videos on diseases, and having the doctors even you can hire a freelance videographer for really not a ton of money, and have them come in and have a pe- uh, a, a client or a you know an employee's pet come in and have a really nice video of Doctor Bob in a nice coat with a beautiful background examining a pet and and showing them what a great job we do at Clinic X Y Z building the um, building that expertise right again rebuilding that expertise because as again kind of Sam mentioned and I've hit on is that I think we need to rebuild that expertise and say we are actually the experts not Google but as Sam mentioned too you know don't fight it right your clients are already doing it heck I do it when I have a little ache in my elbow I go on Google and I say you know ache in the elbow and it'll say you know everything from bone cancer to a little strain and I go oh I'll probably take the strain and I don't see my general practitioner all that often so it's already here so we as Sam said we need to drive them to these to these areas that they that they need to do I've seen some clinics uh, which is so counterintuitive but I've seen them go from a shortened appointment like a 15 minute Minute or something back to thirty, but charge more. Sounds totally counterintuitive, but a client might pay twenty to forty percent more for an exam with thirty minutes with the doctor than they would for you know twenty dollar exams that are basically five minutes of the doctor's time and and you know possibly I don't want to say poor care, but like lower care in terms of the client's perception. Not that the vet's doing anything wrong, but the client sees thirty seconds of the vet's hands on the animal and wonders what did I just pay for? So I've seen some clients revert to more of that boutique model. Um, I've seen them you know staff up and and increase and enhance the role of the vet tech, Mary, I know you're a CVT, and throw them in the room after the veterinarian's done to take care of a lot of the client education stuff. I think that's a really underutilized part of what CVTs and any vet tech, vet assistant can do. And it continues to show the client the value they're getting, you know, for the, their exam. So, um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure Sam's seen some great stuff too, but those are just some ideas from using technology to speed up the process, as Sam mentioned, to that whole client journey from the minute they want to find you, you know, um, using social media and making sure, your expertise is kind of forward so that when they find you, they know they're your expert, then getting them in as a client, selling them on the service and using education to kind of augment that and, and buffer that. And then the last thing I would say is there's a lot of clients that are a lot of vet clinics that have started doing client surveys and not um, I mean, a little bit beyond just the 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 rating of how the visit went, but what do you need and want from us? You know, do you want to be on an app? Do you want to have faster appointments, shorter appointments, using, you know, polling your top and, and bottom 10 clients and doing focus groups? Um, uh, and figuring out what your clients need, because you know Walmart's doing that, right? You know that they're sending out surveys as to how their service was and how fast their checkout was and if they, you know, what other products you want them to, to offer. So doing the same thing uh, with with those clients as well. So those are just a, a, a huge smattering and there's like hundreds more, but those are the kinds of ideas of breaking out of this mold of what we, how we used to do vet med and, and doing it a little different That I think have really, but they're all aligned with care first. And so it's it's been, I've seen them, you know, have really, really great results with, uh, you know, surveys and changing the flows of the practices and adding technology, you know, the phones go down, the peace, you know, it's, it's quieter and more peaceful in the clinic. So those are just some, some good ideas.
0: David, I know that you and I could probably talk about uh, staff utilization all day. We could make probably 10 podcasts about that alone, (laughs) but I'd love to hear Sam, what your take is on this from the veterinary student perspective, because, you know, we in clinic are starting to adapt and starting to learn and at least wanting to, how is vet school preparing you and everyone else around you for entering this kind of environment in which you're going to be treating pets and treating owners? What's the expectation there? And is it more student driven? Or or do you get the sense that schools are starting to adapt and take this approach as well?
1: I think that when you look at a lot of the newer schools, they are changing up their model of education dramatically. I think at Western, they start in the first week, they've got a kind of a role play with a client before you know anything about vet med, right they're just getting you comfortable with communicating with your client so i do think that there's been a big change from a more didactic model towards a more problem solving um, flip classroom approach and i think that's really important because as you were talking david it really just reminded me again of like all of these pressures that are on working professionals and on the professionals in training that you've got to be a great diagnostician. You've got to be a great communicator. You've got to be a great leader. You've got to be a great business owner. Like there are a lot of things that we aren't explicitly told in vet school or, you know, as a professional, but those pressures exist. And so recognizing what are the things that we can let go of that we can utilize our text for that we can utilize technology for just to reemphasize what David was talking about. I mean, there's such a, a pressure to do things perfectly as a vet student. I see it all the time in my classmates that recognizing when, okay, if you do send out a survey to your clients and they say that they want texting, (laughs) like give them texting. And even if you don't think that that's the most appropriate way to practice medicine, at the end of the day, if we're moving the needle on what we're getting our clients to do in terms of the care they're giving for their pets in between visits, that's a huge part of the day-to-day work that we just, that goes unseen in the clinic. But that is a really big piece of this, you know, building trust and, and creating a client base that is, That is really built around that more retention model. And so in vet school, I would say it's pretty in flux. Like I have loved the education that I've gotten, but we don't get nearly enough uh, time with clients, um, whether they're role-play clients or, you know, just communicating with people. And I think that what we're seeing more and more is that schools are investing a lot more in the ability to articulate complex thoughts as they come through these data streams of whether it's a telemedicine service or just doing research as an ongoing practitioner, you know, being able to to dialogue that into layman's terms for clients is a huge part of what makes an effective doctor. And so I think vet schools are starting to recognize how important that client communication aspect is as it relates to building longevity and trust and ensuring compliance. Yeah,
0: I mean learning from the ground up what it's going to be like when you're in that exam room and how to build that lifelong relationship with that client is huge. And it's good to hear that steps are being taken in that direction at least. So, what do you all perceive would be the biggest challenges or hurdles a clinic would face moving more towards this care first model and way of practicing medicine?
2: I would have to say it's really their own mindsets that they need to challenge. So, so I, you know, When you think about, if you were to ask somebody that question, maybe that isn't on the pod and hasn't thought about this deeply like I have, they might say, you know, time, staffing, all of those things. And I see those as absolutely roadblocks that can 100% be overtaken and, and conquered. So I have to step back and say, okay, what actually is the thing that would prevent a clinic from doing it because there are clinics that have done it, right? And they all have really the same challenges of trying to find doctors and not enough technicians and too many clients and all these things. It really has to do with their mindset. Are they willing to change or are they not willing to change? Because the world has changed around them and I don't even, you know, we talk about COVID and I think that COVID's used a lot as kind of the scapegoat for change. We, we always joke, though, that the industry is 20 to 30 years behind the rest of the world, right? Be- because that's true. Texting was happening 20 years ago in the dental field and forward booking and the use of dental hygienists, you know, and, and the kind of team approach to, to practicing medicine model. Um, human medicine has been leveraging, you know, registered nurses for a lot longer and have been an EMR for probably 30 years, right? So there's a lot of stuff that, that we do, and because it's because we're at such a small, independent industry, which is, you know, being consolidated, but still not, you know, it's still not anywhere near complete. So I think that a lot of it is their own mindset and they need to really challenge themselves and say, okay, am I operating in a way that I think is right for my clients? And I think is the way that my business should operate? Or am I operating in a way that my clients want me to be operating in? And I think that's the huge difference that we have to get over. For many years, it really could be Dr. Dr. Jane or Dr. Bob's way of doing things at their practice that would just keep the practice going. But I, I think that, you know, we talk about on the pod that commoditization is kind of bad, but I do think that that is the way the world is going. And so you almost have to commoditize your independent private practice, meaning, meaning using the same techniques and tools that successful business chains have done not not becoming a chain but using social channels using education you know using a team leveraged approach managing your supply chain like all of those different you know branding and marketing and expertise and 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 all of that stuff so I think that that's the really biggest thing is do you, and there's nothing wrong with it, but you have to examine are you operating in a, and no offense, but like 50s, 60s, 70s, maybe 80s style mindset? You don't have technology, you haven't done any updates to the practice, you know, you could challenge all these other ways that things are being done, you know, you're not offering different, you know, holistic or whatever it is, right? Or, and are you willing to then look at some of these things that many, many clients want? And there's so many, so much, so many resources as to what clients want. AVMA does it, and there's a, you know, bazillion others or, and are you in that, or are you really resistant? Are you really digging your heels in and saying, as Sam mentioned, I don't think that my clients want texting and I also don't think that, you know, texting is a great delivery of care. And I and, and if you are in that camp and I totally get it, I would just encourage you to do two things. One is challenge that mindset, you know, why don't you text and what's the big drawback? For, is an example, right? Texting, there's all kinds of other things, but as an example, and the other one would be talk to somebody who does, you know, call up another owner, manager, clinic that does two-way texting, stock them online, you know, obviously, these should probably be kind of outside of the competitive landscape. Maybe they're in a different state. Uh, but, you know, go to a website, see somebody that has a pet desk, figure out that they do two-way text and call and say, hey, can I talk to the manager and figure out, you know, did you have a client revolt? And I almost guarantee you that 99% of the time that manager is going to say, yeah, nobody cares. They all love texting and they've never had an issue with it. You know, so you really have to challenge where that that bias is.
1: I think, yeah, and with the mindset, too, it can be overwhelming to try to imagine where to go with a fresh mindset or how to even like figure out what the, I guess, next steps would be once you do have an open mindset, because there's, there just is so much happening. Like David, you just listed like six different strategies that a clinic could employ to improve their, you know, client relations or revenue or whatever it is that they're trying to hone in on. And so I would encourage folks that are in a position to be able to, to guide their practice to look to those examples that have done it, just like David said, you can call people up, but there's also models for how to engage with your mindset. So if you've never done a SWOT analysis over your business, it's a great, it's a great thing just to like get your team on the same page about what are the things that we all want to be backing. When a client asks us about what, what do you know what's different about your practice than the practice down the road? What are the things that you want every single client to walk away from your hospital feeling and thinking? And if you can start to build that into a thought project, then it's not so scary as like we're changing our business practice and our business model. Let's just put it on the table and see. You know what what would it look like if we if we listen to this focus group of clients that said they want an app and they want texting? What would it change? talk to the clinics that have done it before and you know engage with some of those tools that can help just kind of formulate what you want your evolved practice to look like in 2022 not in 1970. <laughs> right, right.
0: This uh, brings to mind uh, a quote from Dune, which I know I'm outing myself as being nerdy here, but the fear is the mind killer, right? Mm-hmm. Fear is the mind yeah, killer. 100%. You will get in your own head about it and you will think, I can't do that. It's too hard. I don't have staff. I don't have time. I don't have revenue, whatever it might be. But, you know, it's, it's, this is also the solution to all of those problems. So, you know, what, so what would you guys say would be the thing that the message you want to communicate to somebody who's like, yeah, I think I need to start trying some of these care first solutions, but I don't really know how to take that first step.
2: Take the first step. Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So I think a lot of us suffer from perfectionism syndrome in veterinary medicine. I think that, you know, Sam, you can probably, you know, you could counter this, but you probably would agree that you probably don't go into. Wanting to be a veterinarian because you want to mess up, right? You want to give the wrong drug, you want to make the wrong cut and surgery. No, you want to do the right thing, meaning basically the perfect thing, right? Have the perfect drug, the perfect dose that solves that disease. So it's inherent that. The the level at which what we're striving for in veterinary medicine is perfection because anything less would kill an animal, right? But however, we're not perfect. We're not robots. So I think the one thing that I would tell everybody, the listeners, is, first of all, none of this is life-threatening. None of this is life or death. None of this is medicine. That's why business, they say it's not medicine. It's not emotional. So take a step. And and I would encourage you not to take a step, meaning we're going to start texting tomorrow. I I heard from Mary and Sam on this podcast, we're going to start texting tomorrow. Think of it for, even if you're not a veterinarian on this podcast, if you're a manager or owner, work with your medical director or your your veterinarian owner. Start with step one. What is step one? Assessment, right? What is going on at the practice? You want to look through. Are you? Do you have upset clients, or are you killing it with with profit and you couldn't even think twice about making changes, right? Maybe there's no reason to make change. So step one. Then you do a diagnosis, right? Like these are the things that we suffer from. We suffer from old school syndrome or something, right? And you want to work through that. And then you come up with a treatment plan for for the veterinarians on the podcast. I mean, I'm sure all of you would love to completely fix the cat's kidney disease today, but you're going to draw the blood, you're going to see the BUN is up and you're going to start something, right? Diet, fluids, whatever it might be. And then what? They come back in a month and you draw more blood and the BUN's a little higher and you try something else. So it's an iterative process of trying slowly, you know, what do they say about eating an elephant, right? One bite at a time. You start with something. And then I would really encourage um, all of you to to find these project management tools like Monday, Asana, there's a bunch of them where you can roadmap and, and look at what you want to accomplish in a year and you do it one day, one month at a time. So for example, if your goal in a year is to start two-way texting, that's great. And you can come up with all the steps that are needed. You can pull your staff, you can you know find the right platform, you can launch it, you can bait it, whatever. Or if your goal is to completely revamp the practice in a year, that's great too. And you can chunk out all the pieces that you want to to look at. Um, This is where I would say, this is where you leverage your managers, administrators, whatever you call them. Um, Because I think a lot of times veterinarians that are owners that are super involved in the business running of the practice, this, you know, get stuck because they weren't trained how to do business stuff, which makes total sense. And so then they, just like we talked about, they're not thinking about it like a scientific method approach. So they don't know what to do. And then they get paralyzed because they're perfectionists. So they can't make the wrong step. They have to step back and say, well, what would I do if this were a dog in front of me, you know, with weird skin symptoms that I don't immediately know the answer to? I can't just jump to giving them convenia, right? I have to start with the gums and the ears and the scrape and all these different things to figure out what the heck's going on. Same thing, and business leaders do this all the time. We never leap towards the solution without figuring out what the problem is first.
1: Everything that you just outlined is like perfect and superb. And the only color that I would add to it is that there are very few practices that I've shadowed in or worked in, in which I feel as though the whole team understands the mission of the clinic. And so if there is an opportunity to you know, really dive into exactly what we want our ideal customer, our, our ideal client to look like, especially if we go back to the beginning of this conversation, where we're talking about these big box stores, the commoditization of pets. There's a segment of clients that are going to opt for that experience. And that's going to take away some clients from some clinics. I mean, sure, it's going to be hopefully a negligible amount. Um, but in the same way, we talked about how there's this segment of clients that are moving towards you know, understanding full personhood of their pets and making these very emotional and raw decisions about their pets, thinking deeply about how to care for them. And so that offers then an opportunity for us to, to welcome those clients into our practice. But each clinic has its own special sauce of care. And so building on that special sauce of care is is hugely important for understanding the customer journey and the customer mindset and putting yourself in the shoes of your clients in order to make a more effective effort in a seamless building of trust through their interactions with your technology with your team and with your clinic. And so looking at, you know, what are the things that make us special and unique and what are our ideal clients? In terms of what they want to get out of their relationship with their vet clinic and with their teams within the vet clinic, that then can be the foundation by which you go through those exercises that David was talking about. And you start to build a methodology that every single person in the clinic can point to and say, this is what we're behind at this clinic, and that's why we do these things. That's why we don't allow our clients to do these things. That's why we opt for this medication. It can all roll back into what your beliefs are in how you want that patient care to look so that we can start working towards, you know, a care first collaborative approach.
0: You got to have that unifying North Star. Well, I think this discussion has been really awesome. And I really enjoyed hearing both of your input on all of these issues. You guys have a lot of great things to say and some really great experience. Is there anything else that we haven't touched on today that you'd like to share?
1: Put me on the spot. No, I think just continuing to, um, you know, breathe through these changes. There are an awful lot of caring pet parents out there that want the type of relationship that that you offer at your practice. And just understanding that the, the landscape is changing, but to David's point, like none of the decisions that we're talking about here are life or death. And so just recognizing that there's a huge community of support out there in making these decisions and implementing these decisions and following through with these decisions um, that ranges from, you know, social media groups that ranges to the teams I know at, you know, companies like Pet Desk and just reaching out to a clinic that you saw implement something. I'm sure that they're going to give you the time to say like, this is what worked for us. And this is what didn't, but know that you're not alone. And that there are a lot of people that are, are eager to help make this transition easy, myself included. So just, you know, making sure that, you know, we recognize that it is a a bit of a tumultuous time in the industry and, you know, even in the country. So, uh, there are a lot of people there to support you.
2: That's a great great point i'll kind of echo that as well and say that it's very easy if you were listening to this podcast and you and you don't have any of the stuff we chatted about or maybe don't have all of the stuff we chatted about that we are so hard on ourselves internally. And so I can I can totally see some of you all with imposter syndrome getting off the podcast and saying, oh, my God, you know, we have to start all this stuff tomorrow as a kind of reaction to a little bit of a deep voice saying, you know, we're not good enough because we don't have X, Y and Z. And everybody, you know, no vet clinic is perfect. Everybody is struggling with all of these challenges. Just because I said a clinic put in two way text messaging doesn't mean I solved all of their crises or, you know, made them find a bunch of technicians. So it's about really having this big, as Sam mentioned, mission vision for your practice, um, getting the team aligned behind it, and then figuring out what tools solve that. So, for example, if the mission is care first um, or some other kind of moniker that that you want to, you know, be your, your rally or your battle cry at your practice, and you try to figure out a way to implement that. Texting, you know, all the other stuff that we talked about today are really our tools to get that done. And so that's how to approach it versus we should get tech we should do texting because we have to be on the train. It really should be, you know, we're not providing care first because we could be if we were doing XYZ. That's the way to, to think about it. And in that way, you're always really more glass half full than glass half empty. This this isn't meant to say you know you're you're wrong or you're not doing something wrong because you have two way texting. As I mentioned, if you have fat margins and you have a successful practice and great staff and clients that are you know you're booked out six weeks, forget texting. Nobody cares about that at your practice. But if you have a clinic that you know is struggling to build up clients or you have a lot of negative reviews or you know whatever it might be, you probably as uh, Mary said, you've got misaligned from your north star. So find your north star again and then uh, you know utilize the tools to to get you back on track.
0: Well in the spirit of building that community and taking these first steps, how can our listeners follow you guys on social media or in your preferred way that you would be followed?
1: Pretty social media list on purpose, but I am, you know, at the NC State College of Veterinary Medicine. I'm on the board there with the Veterinary Business Management Association. We actually will be having a, a conference, the Wolfpack Leadership Conference sometime in 2023, early 2023. So, if you're a local practitioner, or if you're a practice manager, anybody who's interested in learning about kind of this synergy between the student world and the vet that industry, that'll be a great thing to look towards. But other than that, yeah, you can't find me. <laughs> <laughs> and what's really funny
2: is, yeah, I'm also uh, the same as Sam. Uh, I, I don't, I don't use a lot of social media. Partly. I mean there's just my own like I just, you know, personally, I just I don't. So uh for me it would just be email davidlessrvt at gmail.com. Um, yeah, my Facebook is kinda locked down. I don't have an Instagram, uh, you know. So I, I it sounds crazy because it's like I'm uh, not practicing what I'm preaching, but it's more of a personal decision. Right. If I owned a business, I would probably have the business out there. Uh but yeah, feel free to email me. Um, you know, and and uh, I mean again, as Sam mentioned, pet desk is, is such an amazing uh, resource for y'all too.
1: Yeah, I'll 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 piggyback on that. I, I... do have a LinkedIn that is social media. And so feel free to find me there. I do a fair amount of consulting and would be happy to chat with anybody who has questions. So yeah, find me on LinkedIn. And then my email is sam at petdesk.com. So feel free to hit me up there too.
0: I'd like to thank David and Sam for being guests on today's episode, as well as you, our listeners. We appreciate your support and hope you'll subscribe to our podcast, Simple Interrupted, on your favorite app, and maybe even share it with a fellow friend. This has been a co-production of Evergreen Podcasts and Pet Desk. Learn more by downloading the Pet Desk app or going to PetDesk.com. A special thanks to the Pet Desk team, Judy Vey, John Mark Sable, Kevin O'Leary, and Emily Bickerud coynard as well as our Evergreen production team, producer Nyjah Galladay and audio engineer Gray Sienna Longfellow. I'm your host, Mary Schwartz. Thanks for listening.